Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today we look at the Democratic Party, uh, an institution that is having the kind of identity crisis that is not uncommon after a presidential win, but I think probably all the more acute for the fact that they almost found it impossible to conceive that Hillary Clinton was going to lose to Donald Trump last year. Um, when they talked about outliers, it was usually the prospect that Trump would lose and take both houses of Congress with him. So you recently wrote up a diagnosis of the ills of the Democratic Party after this election, and today I want to just walk through them one by one. So let me start here. This is the first one that you cited. Uh, African-American voters, so central to Barack Obama's two elections, also considered really something of a gimme by Democrats for some time. And uh, every time Republicans try to make a play for them, usually seems a little ham-fisted, never really moves the needle much. But you do think that this arrangement between Democrats and African-American voters is something of a liability for the Democratic Party, don't you? In this sense that the rhetoric necessary <coughs> for a non-minority presidential candidate, i.e. somebody that's not Barack Obama and is Hillary Clinton, a 60-something multimillionaire white woman, the, the desire, the need to get 70% uh, turnout and 95% block voting uh, requires you to say certain things that turn people off, like embrace Al Sharpton or Black Lives Matter, etc. And so Obama's appeal to the minority community was not transferable in the numbers that it had to be given that there were downsides. So in, what I guess what I'm saying is he didn't he passed on all the downsides but he didn't pass on any of the pluses to Hillary Clinton or any of these successors. So the the Democratic Party is now mostly in this national sense limited to the coast and then a big city mayoral party. It's lost the house, the senate, the legislature, the governorships, the supreme court, presidency. And uh, that was really the legacy of Barack Obama. So what do you do to correct for that? You have to, a fork in the road. You either do what you did after you ran McGovern, say, in 72 and destroyed the Democratic Party. You get somebody like Jimmy Carter, Southern accent and kind of a liberal guy, but people could trust. Or you double down on defeat. And in the past, every time um, the Democrats have nominated a northern liberal, uh, you know, a guy like Mondale or Dukakis or McGovern, they've not done very well. So they've doubled down and come back with, you know, anybody who was a Democrat that got elected after JFK had a southern accent, whether that Johnson or, or Carter or even Al Gore won the popular vote. But they're not going to do that for some reason. They've changed or they thought the demographics had changed or the progressive movement has replaced the idea of liberalism. Whatever the reason is, they're doubling down on what defeated them. So they're going to go to the race, class, gender, identity, politics route. And yet that, that's how they lost the so-called blue wall of states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. They can't win the presidency uh, without those states. And yet... I think what they're doing is they're doubling down electorally on states that uh, they've already won. I mean, what does it matter if they win California 75 instead of 70 percent or New York 60 percent rather than 55? It doesn't matter. 
and that's what they're doing. They're appealing to constituents that are already going to be democratic, and they're losing that proverbial uh, middle class in the Midwest. And uh, I think the Republicans are very lucky that they're doing that. That takes us to another one of the liabilities that you've pointed out, or at least potential liabilities, the other big ethnic demographic blocks, Hispanics and Asians. And this has been, as you referenced a minute ago, the theory of the case for Democrats for a while, this whole emerging majority thesis relies on the bedrock black support that we were just talking about. And then Hispanics and Asians increasingly seeing the GOP as anathema. And and indeed, there are still some people who look at this last election and say, well, it was a speed bump, but there's still this almost deterministic influence that the demographics are going to provide as time passes. Is that too confident in your judgment? Yeah, I think it is because it ignores the electoral college. And by that, I mean the Latinos are half of them are from Central America and Mexico are concentrated in two states, Texas and California. (coughs) And both of them are sort of irrelevant. In other words, Texas is going to be red no matter what, and California is going to be blue no matter what. So they've half the Latino strength from South America, Central America, Mexico is sort of is wasted. And uh, there's, that's not even getting into the issues of assimilation where people no longer identify themselves primarily as Latino, but just people. Uh, Cubans are tend to be more conservative. So people are intermarrying, they're assimilating, they're integrating. So this idea that you're all, and then if Trump were to limit illegal immigration and reclassify legal immigration as truly diverse and multiracial from all over the world, rather than, you know, 60% from Latin America, I don't see the demographic in the same confident terms as the Democrats do. <laughs> you mentioned a few minutes ago what, what you called the uh, race, class, gender agenda, basically identity <laughs> politics. Clearly, that's been an electoral liability for the Democrats to some extent. Uh, I wonder, Victor, it seems to be so central to the way that progressive elites define themselves. Do you see any chance that they can sort of disentangle that part of their ideology? It just seems like a, a core part of Democrat <laughs> self-conception. No, I don't. I, they need one more bad defeat. So I guess what I'm saying is if they get up to a Republican filibuster, filibuster-proof Congress, Senate, in 2018 – then I think that it'll start to dawn on them as it has in the past after the Mondale defeat uh, in 84, the Dukakis defeat. Uh, they started to, to switch a little bit. And then you get a guy like Bill Clinton that was a centrist, at least for a while he was. So I, I think they need to be defeated one more time before it sinks in. They've got too many. They've got hundreds of thousands of people who are invested in this project. So you have a David uh, Brock on the uh, – the PAC side, you have a Donna Brazil, you have uh, a politician, Keith Ellison, who might be the the new DNC chief, or even Tom Perez. You've got people that are not going to broaden the base of the Democratic Party, and yet they're so entrenched and their acolytes are so numerous that you have a whole race, class, gender industry, and I don't know how you get that, get rid of that, that impediment to broad appeal without uh, without another defeat. I understand they won the popular vote, but 
they've got an, a matrix there. If you look at the electoral college, I don't see how they get out of it unless they uh, change their message. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, we've heard a lot of chin scratching before the election about the blue wall. This was the assortment of states that were supposed to provide the foundation for a democratic victory in the Electoral College. And you and your writing have identified that as another weakness here. You you think that actually, in truth, the Republicans may be operating from the stronger base. Walk, walk us through that. Well, I think Donald Trump taught them that if you, as long as your candidate doesn't wear wingtips or he has a Queen's accent or he likes being around union people – or he's brash and he appeals in a class and cultural sense to everyday people in a way that especially Romney didn't, but even McCain did not, then you have a chance at that white working class, especially if you concentrate on fair trade rather than free trade and jobs, 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 and immigration. And that's everybody thought that was not going to work. The Republican Party after 2012 was basically saying we've got to be a Democratic Party light. Open borders, act of love, Jeb Bush's term for illegal immigration. So Trump taught them there's another way, and it's successful. But the Democrats are feeding into Trump's uh, message. And I mean, when they showcase people like Ashley Judd with that that profanity, disgusting rant on Inauguration Day, or Madonna threatening to blow, wanting to blow up the White House, or the Black Lives Matter or the pussy, so-called pussy demonstrations, or all of these celebrity outbursts, or boycotting the inauguration. I mean, this just feeds into the narrative that somebody in Michigan, Ohio, says, you know what, as long as the Republicans have a message that they care about a working-class person, and they're not a bunch of country club blue-stocking people, but they care about my job, and they want, want to get this plant working again, I don't like those people. I don't like the left wing. They make fun of the country. They make fun of people like me. I don't have any white privilege. You know, that's all they talk about. So I, I talked to somebody not long ago, and I kind of wrote about it. He said, you know, I'm getting so sick of turning on the television and hearing white privilege, white privilege, white privilege by either a multimillionaire black guy or a multimillionaire white guy. And they go back and forth. The white guy feels guilty and blames people like me who has nothing. That message is is really explosive for the Democrats. If they don't stop that, they're going to lose um, the entire white middle class. And after all, I mean, seventy percent of the country is still white. It's not demographic is not quite what everybody told us. And that working white class does not like the Democratic Party. They don't like to be called racist. They don't like to be apologized. And said to me. If this country is so bad, why in the hell would people want to come across the border? If they come across the border, why don't they wave the American flag rather than the flag of the country they don't want to go back to? And these kind of basic logical questions can't be answered by the Democrat. Victor, a lot of people anticipating exactly that same dynamic that you just forecast of the party sort of sorting along class lines are made nervous by that. Is there anything that's inherently worrying to you about the idea of partisan affiliations matching more closely with class affiliations? Well, class, I think, has less damage uh, than identity tribal politics. In other words, if Trump were to make the argument to African Americans, forget what I look like, I can do more for you than Barack Obama can because I'm going to get GDP growth at 4%, and I'm not going to undercut your wages by importing cheap labor from south of the border. 
and I'm going to get charter schools for you, and uh, I'm going to get people to relocate and no more outsourcing or offshoring to the same degree, and you're going to be well off. You don't have to like me, but I'm, you're going to be well off. And remember, he doesn't have to get 50%, 60% of the African-American vote, to take one example. All he has to do is one or two things. He just needs to get a third or 40%, or he just needs to say, you know what, I'm helping you. Don't vote for me. Just don't vote for the other person, the liberal person who put you in this this quagmire. And because the Democratic Party has so alienated uh, white America, especially white working class, they're so reliant on just fantastic uh, registration rates, uh, voter turnout, and block voting, all because of the, I think, the uh, flash in the pan candidacy of Barack Obama, that they, they can't afford for a Republican to just chip away it. Not to to steal, but just chip away that minority support. One last area I wanted to highlight where you've written about Democrats being white of the mark is environmentalism, which is interesting because it wasn't that long ago, 2008 election, where we were sort of being told that the politics of this were being dispositively settled in Democrats' direction. Back then you had John McCain plumping for a cap-and-trade program, but now you're writing about this as an electoral liability for the left. What, what happened in that interim to make this so toxic? Well, two things happened. It was it became it went from conservation to environmentalism to boutique and environmentalism. So you had all these people, you know, like a Nancy Pelosi or Diane Feinstein or Barbara Boxer who were Bay Area multimillionaires telling everybody that this is how we're going to we're going to save the environment by stopping dam construction, aqueduct construction, highway construction. Uh, we're going to stop Keystone. We're going to stop the Dakota. And then Trump comes along and says, hey, wait a minute. These are all multimillionaires. They can afford to be green, green because, uh, you know, they've got money that influences them from the ramifications of their own ideology. But I'm going to build stuff and I'm going to make sure the water's, you know, clean and the air's clean. But we're going to build stuff and make jobs and then you start. So what he, what Trump did, and people had tried earlier to do it without much success. Trump redefined for the Democrats environmentalism as a snobbish, aristocratic, leisured class obsession, a religion, and that it didn't take into account people who needed a job. Before you can be a, a boutique environmentalist, you have to be able to eat and have shelter and have a car, and environmentalism was not going to do that for a lot of people in these swing states. So I think it, we're in a holding pattern now for cap-and-trade, global warming, all of this stuff, and suspensions on internal improvements. In, the, in a way, the environmental movement was just like the pre pre-war antebellum South. Uh, the old King Cotton, that the high-tech industry, they were sort of, well... I, I'm against internal improvements. I don't like progress. That's northern grubby, smoky industrialism for hoi polloi. I kind of like our unique culture, our art, our music. I want to stay static in time. That was an aristocratic idea, and it's no accident that people in California also embrace Confederate ideas of nullification and succession. But it's basically an idea of an aristocratic plantation class that has uh, the leisure to dream on that they can keep their culture green forever and not have to build or, or, or open schools for the average person or affordable housing. 
And I, boy, Trump really turned the tables on him in that aspect. All right. All issues that we're going to be talking about for a while. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And you can also stop by hoover.org to read all of Victor's commentary and writings. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.